those who are called Baptists possess certain distinctives. We hold a sacrosanct, a set of beliefs. We believe such things that as salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures, that scriptures are free from error, that they are infallible, incapable of misleading us. We believe in the authority of the word of God as the revealed, inspired truth of God. Baptists believe in a regenerate church membership. We believe that we ought to observe baptism by immersion for believers. We believe in the commemoration of the Lord's Supper as commanded in Scripture. But one of the distinctives that we cherish is the distinctive of the priesthood of believers. Baptists believe that every Christian is a priest unto God. And this means that we by ourselves are able to interpret scripture. Not suggesting that we do not need teachers, but that we do not need a special class of people. Priests to teach us and to tell us the word of God. We are able by ourselves to read the scriptures and to interpret scripture. Now God has placed in the church those like ourselves who are called upon to proclaim the word of God. But every individual is capable, every believer is incapable because he has received an anointing from God. We believe that we do not need mediators to pray for us, but that we can pray for ourselves to our Heavenly Father, the priesthood of the believers. For those of you who have been with us in the mornings know that we have been insisting upon the high priesthood of Jesus. But that truth, that great truth, is to be balanced by this corollary, this parallel truth, that not only do we have a great high priest in Christ, but we ourselves are priests unto God. In fact, the writer of this epistle, Peter, tells us that we are a royal priesthood in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And Peter writes to believers whom he describes as pilgrims, to those who are strangers scattered throughout Asia Minor. And he tells them that they are the elect of God. These are believers who are suffering. They are marginalized because of their faith in the Lord. 
because of their allegiance to Jesus, they are being persecuted. But he tells them about their identity. He says, you are the elect of God. God has chosen you from eternity past and has set you aside. They are his. They are the people of God. He reminds them that they have been regenerated by the word of God at the end of chapter 1. And in chapter 2, beginning in verses 1 to 3, he calls upon them to cultivate their faith. They are to crave, to hunger, to desire the pure milk of the word of God. And to do so, they are to lay aside malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and evil speaking. So he's telling them to cultivate their faith by like babes, endeavoring to imbibe the truth of the word of God. But in verses 4 to 10, he picks up again their identity. He's been calling them the elect of God. But here, he's telling them that they are the people of God. And what he does is in this passage, he identifies them as those who have come to Christ. They have tasted the Lord. They have come to him. And they have come to the Lord whom he describes as a living stone. He's in fact reflecting upon Psalm 118. Jesus Christ is a stone. And he goes on to describe him as a chief cornerstone. He is the foundation of faith. He is a stable, impregnable foundation upon which our faith is built. But he's a living stone. And that is a reflection upon the fact that our Lord has been raised from the dead. He also goes on to say that believers, because Christ is the living stone, they themselves are living stones. And he describes them as those who are being built up into a spiritual edifice. They're being built up into a spiritual house, a temple. And they are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. So he identifies them as living stones whom God is using to build a spiritual temple. He makes it very clear that the destiny of humanity rests upon one's response to this living stone, this chief cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that for those who trust in Christ, he is precious. They will not be put to shame. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. For these who believe in Christ, they will never be put to shame because their faith will be vindicated in the end. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious in verse 7, or to you who believe, honor. So there are those who believe in him who would never be ashamed but will be given honor at the coming of the Lord. But there are those who do not respond to Christ with belief, to this chief cornerstone. In fact, they reject him. And he goes on to say that this chief cornerstone that is rejected by many is a stone of stumbling, a stone over which they will stumble. It says in verse 8, they stumble being disobedient to the word. And then he says, to which also they were appointed. They were appointed. 
the language of predestination that even those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ and stumble over him, their rejection of Jesus Christ, their stumbling over him, is not something that takes God by surprise, but is part and plan of God's eternal purpose and will. But he says in verse 9 that they are not like those who stumble over Christ. Well, who are they? He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people. We could develop each of these descriptions. But my task is to center merely upon this description of believers as a royal priesthood. And what I want to do is not so much exegetical, but a synthesis, a synthesis regarding the believer's priesthood as taught to us primarily in the book of Hebrews and yes, here in 1 Peter. Believers are a royal priesthood, royal priests unto God. I want us to consider the three constituent elements of our priesthood. I want us to consider first the foundation of our priesthood unto God. Secondly, I want us to look at our privilege as priests unto God. And thirdly, the purpose of our priesthood unto God. First then, the foundation of our priesthood as believers is union with Jesus Christ, the great high priest, and the cornerstone of our faith. Peter says that we are a royal priesthood. He's not the only one to describe believers as priests unto God. John in Revelation chapter 1-6, in bringing greetings from the triune God, says he brings them greetings from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So John sees believers as kings and priests. And believers are kings because they are connected to the great king, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are kings and we are priests because we are connected to Jesus Christ, who is the great high priest. John also, in chapter 5, verse 10, says, God has made us kings and priest to God, and we shall reign on the earth. The same idea of believers as priests, a royal priesthood, or a kingdom of priests, occur in Revelation 20, verse 6, where we read, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. This notion of the believer as priest is, in fact, a reflection upon the Old Testament book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 19, we read, the Lord now speaking to Israel, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel in Exodus 19 verse 6. What Peter does in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, 
is that he takes the descriptions that were used of Israel and applies them to the church. And what he's saying is that the church of Christ is the new Israel. We are a chosen generation. We are a royal priesthood. We are a kingdom of priests. A holy nation and God's own special people. But as I've intimated, the foundation of our priesthood is our connection to Christ, the great high priest. And the book of Hebrews, again as I've mentioned before, centers on this topic of Christ as the great high priest of his people. Jesus Christ is described in chapter 2 verse 17 of Hebrews as a merciful and faithful high priest. The writer calls him the apostle and high priest of our confession. Seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So he is the high priest of our confession, the merciful and faithful high priest. He is the great high priest. And it is precisely because we are related to him that we are called a royal priesthood. Peter does not call Jesus Christ a high priest. But there is cultic language, sacrificial language, in 1 Peter that intimates that he, at least Peter, views him as the priest, the great high priest. Notice what he says in chapter 1, verses 18 to 19 of 1 Peter. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter is referring to the Old Testament and he's referring to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament where if sins were to be pardoned, there had to be a lamb presented. A lamb without spot or blemish. The Lord made very specific, a specific command to Israel. They were not to take the animals that they had, the wounded animals, the ones that were the worst in the flock, they were to put aside the very best, a spotless lamb. And the writer of Hebrews identifies Jesus as that lamb. We have been redeemed not by corruptible things like silver or gold. Our Lord did not pay money to deliver us. But he delivered us because he gave himself as a lamb without spot. You see, he is the priest and he is the victim. He offered himself. This is sacrificial language. You see, Christ is the great high priest who offered himself as a lamb to God. And Peter could go on to say, in chapter 2, verse 24, of our Lord, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. He is that lamb who bears our sins, who carried our sins in his own body on the tree. He paid for them by his death. The same language of sacrifice and priestly language occurs in 1 Peter 3 verse 18. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. What I'm saying then for Peter, the reason that we are priests unto God, a royal priesthood, is because we are connected to the great high priest Jesus Christ, who has given his life to deliver us, who paid for our sins with his blood. You see that the writer of Hebrews, uh, the writer of, of 1 Peter, views our connection to Jesus Christ as the basis of our identity. Whether it is as a holy people or a royal priesthood, it is our, ident- it is our connection to Christ that makes us who we are. This, I think, is plain in chapter 2. He says, coming to him... As a living stone, believers have come to Christ, who is a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. The this, this stone to whom we have come, this living stone, has been rejected by men, but he's chosen by God and he's precious. He says, you who have come to him, you also are living stones, in verse 5. It is because we have come to him, it is because we are joined to him to one who is living stone, that we ourselves have become living stones because we have been joined to him by the Spirit and the same resurrection life that is found in Jesus Christ is found in those who are joined to him. What I'm saying then is we are who we are, priests unto God because we are joined to Jesus Christ, the great high priest in Hebrews and the living stone described here in 1 Peter. But if the foundation of our high priesthood is our union with our great high priest and the chief cornerstone or the living stone Christ, the privilege of our high priest is that we have been set apart for him. We have a great privilege of being a royal priesthood. Let's go back to verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 2. You also as living stones are being built up. A spiritual house. A holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter says that they are living stones and they have been built up into a spiritual house. Which is a spiritual temple. Now when you think then of believers as a spiritual temple. What does it refer to? What was a temple? Why was it important? The temple in Israel was the dwelling place of God. That is where God's locus, God's presence was manifested. You see that in the tabernacle first in the book of Exodus. That when Moses had erected the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory of God came upon it. And in the temple that Solomon built in the most holy place, Between the cherubim over the mercy seat, the the glory of God descended. It is where God dwells with his people. And God is building us, building his people to be a temple. And what it suggests then is that the primary benefit that we have, we who are priests, is communion with God. It is access to the presence of God. That we have the Lord 
present with us by his spirit, but present among his people, this spiritual temple that he's building up. Paul, in fact, calls believers God's temple. In Ephesians 2, 19-20, Paul says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There are different images used of believers. They are members of the household of God, meaning members of the family of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom also you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. To be a royal priest is to have unfettered access to the presence of God. This whole notion of priesthood refers to the fact that we can draw near to God. This is the greatest benefit we have as Priests unto God that we can have communion with God. In the Old Testament, it was the priests who handled holy things. They were the ones who served in the tabernacle and the temple. The high priest was the one who entered into the holy place once a year. And we who are now called a royal priesthood, means that through Jesus Christ we now have the benefit of being able to draw near to God, to come up close to the God who is consuming fire, to be able to dwell in the presence of God, not fleetingly, but forever. You see, we have this great privilege of communion with God. We can come to God and speak openly, and freely, and enjoy his presence and his bounty. We can share our feelings, our hopes, our fears, our dreams. We can enjoy his forgiveness and his blessing. You see, this privilege of being a priest is to have access to God himself. But there is a second privilege that we enjoy as God's royal priesthood. It is not only communion with God, but consecration unto God. To be sanctified and to be set apart. Again in verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, a spiritual temple where God dwells. And he says that they are also being built up as a holy priesthood. Notice he calls them a holy priesthood. You see, God's people have this Blessing and the privilege not only of communion with God as the place where God dwells, but we have the blessing of being consecrated to God as a holy priesthood. So if the connection is to be made between verse 5 and verse 9, it is this. We are God's royal priesthood because we are God's holy priesthood. You see, it is because we are God's priesthood. We belong to God. Listen, the function of the priests was primarily unto God. And right throughout this book, Peter insists that believers are to live holy lives. He says, be he holy as he is holy. 
Why? Because you see, we have this benefit of being set apart and consecrated to God. We are God's holy priesthood. We are chosen generation, a royal priesthood. But at the very heart of what it means to be God's priest is that we are separated unto him for his use. Peter begins this epistle by reminding them that they are consecrated to God. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit. Believers are sanctified and set apart by the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It is obedience to Christ. And we have received his sprinkling, his cleansing work on the cross, which draws us into a sanctified relationship with God. So what I'm saying then as God's holy priests, we enjoy the privilege of being first of all communion with God and consecration unto God. We're set apart for him. So if we have looked then at the foundation of our priesthood that is Christ our great high priest and our connection to him. And the privilege we have of being priests that we are separate apart for God, that we have communion with God. Peter tells us then thirdly the purpose of our high priesthood. And first of all, it is to offer spiritual sacrifices. Uh, Peter tells us of our purpose by using two infinitives. One in verse 5. And the other in verse 9. The first infinity clause in verse 9. He says, you are living stones. And you are being built up into a spiritual house. A holy priesthood. And here is the first infinity. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is the purpose of being priests? royal priest unto God. It is first of all to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our calling as priests is to offer sacrifices but not physical sacrifices like blood sacrifices in the Old Testament. And the reason that we are not killing animals is because we have in Jesus Christ God's final sacrifice, a sacrifice for sin. We cannot offer a sacrifice for sin which can be accepted by God. But our Lord Jesus Christ is that lamb. John says, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But we are called upon to offer spiritual sacrifice. That's our purpose as priests. Now you may ask us, why is it called spiritual? It is spiritual because the sacrifices that we, that we offer to God are inspired and prompted by the Holy Spirit. That there is no sacrifice that we can offer to God that is going to be acceptable unless it is given and done through the inspiration and the help of the Holy Spirit. But you may ask, what is the nature of these spiritual sacrifices? What? What is involved in offering spiritual sacrifices? Well, May I say to you that the spiritual sacrifices that we offer entails the entirety of our lives. But first and foremost, the first and the greatest sacrifice that we offer to God 
is a sacrifice of ourselves. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. And it just doesn't just mean your physical body. It means your totality of your persons. It refers to your mind and everything that makes you as an individual. But he says, I beseech you, by the mercies of God, that is, by God's mercies to you, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. See, Christ has given himself for us. We have experienced the mercies of God that saved us, that delivered us, and it is reasonable, it is a rational thing to do to give yourself entirely to Christ who has given himself entirely for you. Christ gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor, and we are to give ourselves to him as an offering and a sacrifice and a sweet-smelling savor to God. But our sacrifices to God as a royal priesthood, as a holy priesthood, does not only involve the offering of ourselves, it involves our worship to God. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 15 says, Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. When we go to church, we, we don't go there to warm the pews. We don't go to church to meet up with our friends and have a good time, though that is not wrong itself. When we, when we gather as God's people, we gather to offer spiritual sacrifice and worship. It means that you ought to sing and to praise God with all your heart, even if you are tone deaf. Because God delights in the praise of his people. You don't have to be a trained singer. You just need to have a heart that has been touched by grace. And God receives the praises. He's enthroned on the praises of his people. That's a sacrifice that God receives. The psalmist David in Psalm 51 says, A broken spirit, a contrite spirit, is a sacrifice that God receives. You see, worship and joy and praise and humility and repentance is a sacrifice that God receives. So praise is a sacrifice to God. Doing good and sharing is a sacrifice to God. Hebrews 13 verse 16 says, but do not forget, forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Giving of our resources, financial resources, for the cause of the gospel is received by God as a sacrifice. Suppose as indeed I have all and abound and full, having received from Epaphroditus the things you sent for me, a sweet-smelling, or a thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God in Philippians 4 verse 18. So the offering of ourselves, our worship and our gifts are viewed as sacrifices to God. That's our calling as priests. But the second purpose clause in verse 9 teaches us that our calling to offer to God as priests 
that we are called upon not only to offer spiritual sacrifices, but we are called upon to declare his praises. And by the way, we are not suggesting that verse 9 is referring to a different sacrifice from, from, from what we have in verse, verse 5. What he does in verse 5 is that he speaks about the task and the purpose of our priesthood generally. We are to offer spiritual sacrifices. But verse 9 constitutes a precise and definitive. It is now narrowed down to a specific sacrifice. So he gives you a general idea of what it is you're called to do as priests, that is to offer spiritual sacrifices. And in verse 9, he gives you a specific spiritual sacrifice, which he says that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That essential to our spiritual sacrifices as priests is the necessity of declaring his praises. He has called you as a royal priesthood to declare his praises, to declare his great works, to declare his excellencies, or as we have it, his praises. And what are the excellent works? What are the praises of God that we are to declare? Well, we are to declare his saving work. He says, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The praises that we are to give to God, the declaration of the excellencies of God, essentially revolves around evangelism, speaking about the marvelous work that God has done, particularly in conversion. Because it is God who has called us. We who were sinners, who were blind and deaf, the Lord quickened our ears so that we heard the gospel and believe. No man or woman can be saved unless they have received a heavenly call. It is a call that comes with authority and power. It's the same kind of call that Lazarus heard, which says, Lazarus, come forth. And when the Lord issues a call to hearts that are dead and say, live, you must live. But you see, it is by God's powerful call that we are saved. He has called us out of darkness. Darkness refers to sin and to ignorance and to bondage. And he has called us into light, truth, and liberty. And this calling has the result that we who were not a people, in verse 10, have now become the people of God. We who did not know God's mercy have experienced the mercy of God. The reason that we must proclaim his excellencies, his praise in conversion is that we were not God's people. We did not have mercy. But when God called us, he called us in mercy to his mercies. And so when we praise the Lord and when we declare his excellencies in worship and in evangelism, 
We do so because we have received mercy. You see, we are God's priests. We are kings, but we are priests unto God. We are people who have obtained mercy when we did not deserve mercy. And for that reason, we proclaim him. It bears saying then that however you perceive yourself, you must see yourself as a priest. A priest unto God. It means, therefore, that you must walk worthy of this calling because you are God's priest. And this entails, if you are priest, devotion and consecration to God. We ought not to cling to the carnal things and the temporal things of this world. We have been called to Christ, to be devoted to Christ. And the first offering we must bring is a self-sacrifice, a giving of ourselves totally for him, to live for his glory, to live wholly unto him. What he's calling for from you because of Christ and because of his death is total commitment to Jesus Christ. You are being called to be a holy people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy priesthood. You see, priests were called to separate themselves from the rest of men and to be devoted to God. And when you go out this evening into the world, and when you go to work tomorrow, you must go into the world as a priest unto God. That's your marching order, unto God. You are devoted to God. And this devotion to God requires worship. You see, you are priests unto God. You go back to Hebrews chapter 5. The priests were ordained to bring sacrifices and offerings to God. And you are ordained to bring the sacrifice of praise and worship to God. To give him thanksgiving. To share with your resources. You are called upon to be devoted to God and to sacrifice to God. But let us be very clear. We who are called as priests means that we must serve together in the gospel. You need to know that in ancient Israel, Israel priests did not serve by themselves. And when you come across a priest serving by himself, generally he was a false priest. So you go back to Judges 17, and you'll find a man called Micah who saw this priest who came from Bethlehem, and he said, well, where are you going? He said, well, I'm coming from Bethlehem. Micah says, well, come, come, be my own priest. And the guy goes into Micah's house and set up his shrine. <laughs> Very funny, you know, the tribe of Dan are passing through, heard that this Micah had a, his own priest, and they go and kidnap this priest and takes him to Dan. But, it, but it's interesting that it is that Dan, the pagan worship developed in Israel. And the suggestion there is that he was a false priest. Well, you know he was a false priest because he had idols. You see, you and I are called to be priests. But we're not to be priests alone. We belong to a spiritual house. We are being built up into a holy temple. We, as individuals, are temples of God. But as a church, we are the temple of the holy God. 
You see, the, the, you see, there is no lone ranger Christianity. We live in a world where individualism is trumpeted. We go on our own, we do things that we want to do. But you see, when you are a priest unto God, you belong to a body of priests. And all of us are priests unto God and we are to be involved in doing God's work together. There is great apathy today in certain circles about the church. I, I hear people say, well, you know, Christians would be a good thing if it weren't for Christians. And I'm tempted to respond, there is no Christian without Christians. You see, the church is an imperfect body. Even the great apostle Paul says, I have not yet arrived. Paul didn't think that he was perfected. Paul still, if you go back to Romans 7, finds in him a struggle. He wants to please God, but he finds evil is with him. And he has to cry out, who can deliver me from this body of death? And then he looks to Christ. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. He understands that his acceptance with God is through Jesus Christ. That if he looks at himself, he can never achieve righteousness by himself. The church is an imperfect body. But it is the only body that Christ has. It is a church that is being perfected. It is always reforming. It is growing up into a temple. It has not yet been a perfected temple, but we are being built up. And if you are a Christian, you must be a part of the body of Christ. And you must practice your priesthood as a part of the body of Christ. No lone range of Christians. It means that you must become a member of a church. It means that you must use your gifts and abilities. And particularly, you must be involved together with believers in proclaiming the gospel, in declaring his praises, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our calling is to be holy as priest, is to be worshipful and to be evangelistic. Telling to the world, being a mediator to the world, telling them of what Jesus Christ has done in delivering us. And finally, let's remember that only as we exercise our priesthood through Jesus Christ that we are acceptable. For you see, we are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God, but only through Jesus Christ. But as we seek to serve, we must serve knowing that it is Christ, our perfect high priest, who makes our offerings acceptable to God. That there is nothing that you can give to God that will be received by him unless you offer it in the name of Jesus Christ upon the basis of the finished work of Christ. And when we come with our paltry offering, our weak witnessing, our paltry praise, and when we offer it Depending upon Jesus Christ, he, our great high priest, sanctifies our worship, sanctifies our offering so that God accepts them and more than that, God rewards us for them. So who are you? You are God's priests. Live 
like his priests in the world, totally devoted to him, worshiping him, and bearing witness to him because of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who satisfied the word of God for us and brought us into a relationship with our Heavenly Father. For Jesus' sake.